Uh, find your place in your Bible at the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a rather lengthy section of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 26, but I promise you I'm not going to read all those verses. We're going to skip through here. I'm going to pick some things out and draw some things out of this passage as we continue in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to mention a name from the pulpit here that's going to excite some of you and sadden others of you. It's the name Tom Brady. Some people love him and some people hate him. Arguably, he is the greatest quarterback that has ever played football. Arguably. He is the greatest quarterback who's ever played football. I didn't say unarguably. I said arguably he's the greatest quarterback. If you measure it by the number of Super Bowl rings, he has seven. Uh, six with the New England Patriots and one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I really didn't introduce his name, though, to create a conflict amongst those of you that are football fans. I really wanted you to hear his name because of something that he said after winning his third Super Bowl. He was being interviewed on a 60 Minutes interview, and he was asked the question that concerned, you know, what's next? Uh, you have seemingly everything you could ever want, and yet you still say it's not enough. And he responded this way. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think I've got, it, it's, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. You hear what he says? There's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. And then he repeated himself, I wish I knew. You find that interesting? A man who at the top of his game says, there's got to be something more than this. I mean, this can't be all that there is. It's it's not fulfilling. It's not completely satisfying. There's got to be something else. It's not what it's all cracked up to be. And that's where a lot of people are in life. Dr. James Dobson told the story, used to tell the story, of a young woman by the name of Karen Chang. She was 17 years of age. She lived in Fremont, California. She achieved a perfect score on both parts of the SAT exam. She scored a perfect 8,000 on the rigorous University of California acceptance index. And she was the only one till that time, I don't know since, but till that time she was the only one who had ever accomplished that amazing intellectual feat. Uh, Karen was a straight-A student at Mission uh, San Jose High School, and she describes herself as a typical teenager who munches on junk food and talks for hours on the telephone. She even claimed to be a procrastinator that she would put off to the last minute doing her homework because she just hated doing it, and she did it at the last moment to get it ready. 
Her teachers, though, had a different perspective about her. They called her Wonder Woman. She had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, they said, and she had this uncanny ability to retain whatever she read. One day she was asked by a reporter because of these high scores that she had received, the question, what is the meaning of life? And this extremely brilliant young woman responded by saying, I have no idea. I would like to know myself. Do you find that interesting? Somebody at the top of his game who says there's got to be more than this. Somebody that's at the top of the intellectual scale who says, I don't even know the meaning of life, but I sure would like to know the meaning of life. And that's where a lot of people are today. They've reached the pinnacle of success, but they keep thinking there's got to be something else. They're extremely smart, extremely intellectual, but they can't find the meaning for life. They have a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding, but they simply don't know why they're here. And what their purpose is. Well, Solomon finds himself in the book of Ecclesiastes struggling with these same kinds of questions. Surely there's got to be something more. Surely there has got to be a deeper meaning to life than what I have discovered thus far. And a lot of times when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read through it, you may just skim over it, you get a little depressed reading it. But the reality is the book of Ecclesiastes wasn't intended to depress us. It was intended to drive us to the only one who can give us meaning and fulfillment in life. And that one is God the only one who can give us what we're calling the good life. What some call the good life is a life where you get to the pinnacle of success and you say, you mean this is all there is? You get to the pinnacle of knowledge and you say, I I don't know what the meaning of my life is. That's what a lot of people call the good life. But God has a different definition of the good life and that Good life is a life that is spent seeking after and searching for God. Solomon in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 and through chapter 2 to verse 26, is going to be on a search. He's going to be on a quest to find that something more. I remind you that Solomon at this point in his life is a man who's turned his heart away from God. This is a man who has forgotten God. He's not an atheist, but he's a practical atheist. He's living as if there is no God. He's searching as if there is no God. He's looking purely on a humanistic level, a human level of understanding. He's looking for something that has meaning, something that will bring fulfillment and satisfaction. He's desiring something more than what he found at his pinnacle of success. And he picks it up in chapter 1, verse 12, and he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. You see the little phrase, search out? It's the idea of somebody who's going to write a doctoral dissertation. If you've ever done that, several of our staff have done that, I've done that. A doctoral dissertation, one of the things that's required of you is the diligence of research. You have to dig deep 
into the subject matter that you're studying and you're going to write about. You've got to get beyond the surface matters. You've got to get to the deeper issues. And you'll spend a year or more researching the subject, looking beyond the surface. That's the idea of search out. It's somebody who, like they're researching for a doctoral dissertation, something that they're going to have to go before a panel and defend. He's searching in that kind of a sense. He's searching in the sense of that kind of an investigation. As a matter of fact, you might even call this an investigation. It's an investigative reporter who's looking beyond just what they're being told by those who are the talking heads and looking beyond to see if the truth is really there and what the truth is. It's an investigator who goes to a crime scene and he looks at the crime scene and he says, you know, there's something going on here. He wants to know what happened. He wants to know how it happened. He wants to know why it happened. He wants to know when it happened. And he's looking through the details, every little detail that he can find. He's trying to find the answer to all of those questions. And that's the idea. Solomon is searching out for wisdom. And when he uses the word wisdom, he's not using it like many of us think of it, wisdom in the sense of something that comes from God, being able to see life from God's perspective. He's using it purely in a humanistic perspective. He's talking about reason. Uh, He's talking about philosophy. He's talking about intellect. He's talking about experience. He's talking about what any human being can discover on their own if they're willing to do the research and search it out for themselves, things that they can discover. You don't have to have God to discover these things. They are things that you can discover even without God. And he says, I've gone on this quest. I've gone on on this investigation. I have started on this research for this dissertation. And I started in the realm of the intellect, in philosophy, in reason, in experience. It's interesting. He goes on here in verse 16. He says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And if you read through the life of Solomon from the book of 1 Kings, you discover that his his knowledge, his intellect, his experience, his judgment... It was tested on a number of occasions, and all of the kings of that day and all of the royalty of that day were amazed at how smart this man was, at how judicious this man was, how he could see beyond the surface. He could find the real facts and the real details, and he could make these excellent judgments in many areas of of daily life. He had more than the more wisdom, more of this intellect and knowledge than anyone else of that day. He goes on in verse 17, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here's an old phrase that sometimes we use. Ignorance is, what's the word? I don't know if that's true or not, but we often say it when we don't know something that we really want to know, and we say ignorance is bliss. 
But here Solomon says wisdom brings grief and wisdom brings sorrow. I mean, if you know what you know, it bothers you. I mean, you know the outcomes, you know the end result, you, you know where this is leading, you know the street that this is on. It's a dead-end street, you know that, and it brings grief, it brings sorrow. As a matter of fact, in verse 15 of that same chapter, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. In other words, he says, when you know you've, you've done the research and you've done the investigation and you've done the study, it brings you grief and it brings you sorrow because you know there are some things that just cannot be changed. Some things that just cannot be changed. Have you found that to be true in life? <laughs> there are some things that just simply cannot be changed. You, you may be really smart. You may know a lot. You may have a lot of, uh, uh, of judicious understanding. You may have great reasoning ability. Uh, you know, you may have a lot of experiences in life, but, you know, you know a lot. You may know a lot more than a lot of other people know, but you know that there's a lot of sorrow and grief in that knowledge because there are some things that just can't be changed. No matter how good you know, how much you know, how smart you are, you can't change it. And Solomon said at the end of verse 17, this is grasping for the wind. It's like trying to find a handle on smoke. It's tr like trying to grab hold of a fistful of air. It's, it's like vapor that's there for a moment, and then it's gone, and there's, there's no substance to it. You can't hold on to it. You can't keep it for yourself. It's like a bubble that quickly bursts, and it's gone. He says this searching after, this research for this dissertation that I'm going to write has brought me to the place of looking for wisdom, knowledge, intellect, and understanding. But the reality is it leaves me empty. If education were the answer, then our university should be the most moral, ethical, peaceful, and spiritually fulfilling places on the face of the planet. but they're not, are they? They're some of the most tumultuous places on the planet. He moves from searching in wisdom for meaning and purpose and, and for, for the real reason for life to, to trying to find it in pleasure. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. That's a scientific test. This is the idea of a scientific test with, with careful scientific methods. I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this is also vanity, pleasure. Look over at verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. You ever had that problem with your children when they're very young and you, you had them in the in the cart at the grocery store, and everything they saw, they, what? They wanted. I want that. I want that. I want that. He says he was like a kid in a candy store. He wanted everything, and he kept nothing back. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this is my, was my reward from all my labor. I didn't keep anything back. I didn't hold anything back. He says in verse 2 of that chapter, I said of laughter, madness, and mirth, 
What does it accomplish? By the way, there are 47 questions that are asked in the book of Ecclesiastes, rhetorical questions, 47 questions. And here's another of them. What does it accomplish? All this pleasure. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while, while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I tr- I've looked for pleasure everywhere. I looked for it in the bottom of a bottle. May I stop here for a moment and tell you that I have nothing good to say about alcohol. I wish Christians wouldn't drink alcohol. A greater destruction to the family, to individual lives, to finances, to marriages, to children, than crack cocaine or heroin is alcohol. It destroys over and over again. It addicts over and over again. It might make us feel accepted in a social-like community where everybody's sipping on a drink and now we feel like we belong and we're apart. It might make you feel big as a young person to have gotten something that's alcoholic in your hand and think, now I can act like an adult. But you don't stand on this side with the preachers and the medical doctors and the psychologists that are dealing with the outcomes of alcohol. In a day when alcohol isn't even really necessary for the Christian, it's not like we don't have very many things to choose from, right? Have you been to a 7-Eleven? Have you been to Sheets? Have you looked in the cooler? There are plenty of choices to be made. And Solomon looked for pleasure. He looked for pleasure in a bottle. And he said he couldn't find it. It wasn't there. He moves from searching for it in wisdom, the meaning and the purpose of life, having something that, you know, there's got to be more, looking for the more. He said it wasn't in wisdom. He didn't find it in pleasure. He moves to his accomplishments, his successes. We would call it the degrees that we hang on the wall. We would call it the the buildings that we have built, the the properties that we own. We we would look at our bank accounts, and we we would look at all of the things that we have in stocks and bonds, our financial portfolio. Notice, he goes on, verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. So he's got, he's got horticulture right there in front of him. He's got an arboretum right there in front of him. Mary and I, when we visit our children in Dallas, they live about 15 minutes from the Dallas Arboretum. And you pay one fee. You get to go in all year long on the basis of that one fee, and you can take in two guests we just happen to be guests. And we go in the arboretum. It's manicured. It's right along the lake. 
It's manicured, walking past through all of these different kinds of beautiful flowers. The grass is always cut. The different seasons of the year, you see all the different things that they put out you know, to decorate for the seasons of the year. It's incredibly beautiful. And kings in that day had that kind of an arboretum to walk through around their palaces. He goes on in verse 6, I made myself water pools from which to to water the growing trees of the groves. I acquired male, male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions. Here's one of his successes. He acquired things, possessions. I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. He moves from the success of properties to the success of profits. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. He had all of the entertainment you could ever possibly imagine. As a part of his success, he had properties, he had profits, but he also had popularity. Verse 9, so I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. In other words, I didn't lose my objectivity. I didn't drink myself to the place that I couldn't think correctly and properly about what was going on, about this research that I'm doing, about this study, this investigation He had everything that people want, property, profits, popularity. He had it all. He had everything. Derek Kidner, who is a scholar and who writes about Ecclesiastes, says, what spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can deliver. Getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of temporal and temporary pursuits is destined to fail. Whether it's pleasures or whether it's successes and accomplishments, we are a culture. If you'll let me just read it the way I wrote it, we are a culture drowning in entertainment. We go from one event, one show, one athletic competition to the next to keep us occupied. But all it does is serve as an anesthetic to the hurt and the pain and the emptiness that we feel. It occupies our minds so that we don't have to deal with or search for the real answers to life's deeper questions. Some of us are keeping our kids so busy They never have time to even think about the greater matters of life, the real meaning of life. And that's true for us as adults as well. That's true for the way we're living as well. But entertainment, Solomon says, can't satisfy me. Staying busy, all of my successes and all of my achievements. Can can you imagine what all went into taking care of what Solomon was was doing. I mean, they're building projects everywhere. I don't have time to take you to Second Chronicles chapter 8, where he talks about the cities that he's building beyond Jerusalem, places that are outposts where he's, he's putting up and saving all of these things that he's collecting. 
He has one city that's some 300 miles away. It's on a trade route. It's a matter of a place. You got to pass that way in order to get to Jerusalem. He's got all these places, the palace. It took him 13 years to build his own house. It only took him seven years to build the temple. Took him 13 years to build the king's palace. He's got all of these accomplishments. And then think about taking care of it all. In 1 Kings chapter 4, you just listen to it, verse 22. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal. A core can be between 6 and, and 10 bushels. So take the lower number or the higher number and multiply it. He goes on, 10 fatted oxen every day, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tipsha even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on the side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. In other words, unlike his daddy, he wasn't involved in wars. He wasn't battling the enemy as his father had done. He had peace, and he's spending every ounce of his money looking for meaning from life and looking for purpose. And he looks in the intellect, and he looks in the education, and he looks in reason, and he looks in experience, and he looks in philosophy, and it says it's empty, it's grasping for the wind. He looks in pleasure and entertainment, and he says it never satisfies me. And he looks in his accomplishments. By the way, more than 40 times in chapter 2, Verses 1 to 11. More than 40 times he uses the word I, my, or myself. Everything is being done for me. Look look back at it again. Verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and orchards. Verse 6, I made myself water pools. You get down to verse 8, I I also gathered for myself silver and gold. I mean, he's doing it all for himself. I've got to find meaning. I've got to find purpose. I've got to get busier and busier. I've got to build more and more. There's got to be more accomplishments. There's got to be more entertainment. There's got to be more pleasure. And stop and think about the 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon might have put Hugh Hefner to, to shame. And yet he can't find the answer. Verse 11 of chapter 2, then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit. You remember we looked at that word in the last message? That's the net gain when you've taken everything that you've earned and paid everything out. That's what the net gain, and it comes out to zero. There is no profit under the sun. I, 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 tried, I tried to find the handle on the smoke. I tried to get that air, a uh, fist of air in, in my hand. I tried, 
to hold on to that vapor. I I tried to, to get that bubble to rest on my hand and not burst. But every time it it broke and it left me just as empty as when I started. Just as empty. When you begin in verse 12 of chapter 2, he does an analysis. He goes from his research to his analysis. And he's going to tell you something that's really important. I'm going to talk about it quickly. Verse 13, he says, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. That's death. Whether you're wise or you're a fool, you're all going to die. But he says, here's, the, here's, the, here's my analysis. It is better to be wise, to have intellect, you know, to have reason, to have philosophy, to have education. It is better to have that than it is to be a fool. I mean, when it comes to getting a job, it's a whole lot better to be a college graduate than a kindergarten dropout. Are you with me? I mean, it's, it's a lot better to be a college graduate than a kindergarten dropout. I mean, that's the reality of life. That You know, you, anal- you, you analyze these things and you realize, you know, it is better to have intellect and to have education and to have understanding. That is better than being a fool. Verse 15, he says, So I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, it happened to me. And why was, why was I then more wise than I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Now he's starting to think in his analysis. He's starting to think, you know what? Yeah, it, you know, having intellect and understanding and experience and knowledge and, you know, having uh, philosophy and, and having, you know, all these things is important. It's like walking in the light compared to walking in the darkness. The reality is, The wise and the fool both alike die. There's no gain in it. There's no ultimate meaning in it. There's no ultimate purpose for your life. There's nothing beyond this this life. It's just here for a little while and then it's gone and then it's gone. You'll go on with that kind of thinking here in just a few minutes, but it's amazing. He continues in verse 17, and he tells you from his analysis. Listen carefully to the the depth of the words that he uses. Therefore, after my study was completed and the analysis was done, therefore, I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was, listen to the word, distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 18, then I hated all my labor. You mean all those, all those buildings you built? The, the palace that you built? You, you mean the wall around Jerusalem that you built? You mean all of those outlying places that you built? You mean all of those animals that you amassed, all the chariots and all the horses and the ships? Wow. He says, I hated, verse 18, all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it 
to the man who will come after me. I can't control it. I can't take it with me. And when I'm gone, somebody else will have it. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. sun. This also is vanity. Did you know that research shows that if you amass wealth, that usually by the third generation, the wealth is gone? You know, you're handing it down. Usually by the third generation, the wealth is gone. You understand all of you business owners, all of you people that have a vision of something you want to accomplish in life, you understand that's your vision and it often can't be passed along. Sometimes it is, but it often can't be passed along to the next generation. They'll have a different desire and a different vision of what they want to accomplish and they'll take what you've worked so hard for and they'll squander it sometimes right? It happens. Verse 20, therefore I turned my heart and despaired, hear the word, of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is, 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 is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity. Listen to his words, a great evil what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome even in the night his heart takes no rest this also is vanity I mean such strong words I hated life I was distressed I was in despair that means I've lost all hope I can't sleep at night and all I do you workaholics know exactly what I'm talking about all I do is work every single day all day long hey and technology has made our houses an extension of our offices vacations are now an extension of our offices you know exactly what I'm talking about and Solomon says I got it all I have everything and it means nothing I got to leave it behind to somebody else maybe my son-in-law and he'll squander it all (laughs) not my son-in-law I didn't say that I don't have anything to leave my son-in-law except the bills. (laughs) It'll all be gone. It'll be done. Every day I get up and I go through the same routine. I I work hard every day. I, I work by the sweat of my brow. I go through the same routine over and over. And when I go to bed at night, I can't sleep thinking about it. It's always on my mind. It's always spinning on my mind. I was astounded to read the latest statistics we have from 2019, not 2020. They're not completed yet, but 2019, the latest statistics were that more than 47,000 people committed suicide. But here's the astounding figure. Almost 1.2 million Americans tried to commit suicide. That's from the Census Bureau. 
little more than 47,000 actually succeeded, but almost 1.2, just short of 1.2 million tried to commit suicide. We live in America. We live in the greatest country on the earth. We have more opportunity than any other country has. We have more wealth than any other country. We have the blessings all around us. But people know, they know that you can't find meaning and purpose in pleasure, in successes, in all of your work. You can't find it in education or your intellect or your ability to reason or your education or your, uh, excuse me, your, your ability to make good judgments. And we're miserable. Some of you haven't smiled since you walked in the building. You hadn't smiled. You're just thinking, I'll smile when you're finished. That's when I'll smile. That's when I'm going to smile. That's where we live. Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, the, the famous author, Pulitzer Prize winner. He chose the words, The Sun Always Rises, as the title of his best selling novel. And in it, it conveys the despair that characterized much of his life and writings. Years later, shortly before he committed suicide by taking a shotgun and killing himself, the well-known writer confessed, listen, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug it into. And for those young people who don't know what a radio tube is, ask your grandparents. It was also Ernest Hemingway who said, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Wow. You say, preacher, surely you're not going to leave us there. No, I'm not going to leave you there. You'll come back to chapter 2. He makes the first positive statement. He says, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor, this also I saw was from the hand of God. You know what he says? If you're looking for meaning, ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose in the things that are around you, in things that are temporal, you will never find it. It'll always be like chasing the wind, trying to get a fistful of air. It'll always be that way. It'll always be that way. But you know what? Those temporal things, if you learn to appreciate them and be thankful for them and notice the good things that are around you, that's a gift from God to you. That's a gift from God to you. You know, we're so busy, we don't have time to notice the beauty of the skies above us, the beauty of the moon at night, the beauty of the fall leaves that are blowing across the yard, the beauty of the flowers that are blooming in spring, the beauty of the colors in the fall as the trees are changing colors. We don't have time to enjoy the beauty of the things that are around us. We don't have time to appreciate the people that we stand next to at the plant or that we work with. We don't have time to enjoy. We don't take the time to enjoy those things. And say to God, thank you. I realize that I can't find ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose from this, 
but I want to thank you for it because in it you are providing for my family and in it there is joy. You know, we don't have to have a game controller and something bouncing across the screen to be able to find joy. You can go out and just watch the squirrels fighting for that bird feeder that's hanging over there trying to slide down that little narrow strip of wire that you've got hanging there, just trying to get down to that bird feeder to get some, and just watch them. Or just watch the beauty of the hummingbirds as they flutter right there to put their beak inside the feeder and get that sugar water. And be amazed at the creation of God. We're too busy. Yeah, yeah, I'll be in the office in just a few minutes. Yeah, I know it's, it's after hours, but I'll be there anyway. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, just text me. If I'm not there you know, in plenty of time, just, just text me. I'll be there as quick as I can. Okay. Solomon comes and he says, look, here's my analysis. You're never going to find joy in these things. You're never going to find the lasting joy, the eternal joy in these things. You're never going to find the ultimate purpose, the ultimate meaning of life and what's temporal. You can't find it in the temporal life. But he said if you'll stop and you'll evaluate, you will discover that there's a whole lot of good things that are all around you and you should learn to enjoy them. Now I want to finish by taking you to a case study. You say, okay, pastor, I understand. I get what you're telling me. We're listening to a man who's been there and done that and has the T-shirt, and he's trying to teach the generation coming behind him, don't make the same mistakes. Don't look in the same ways. Don't go about it the same way. There's another approach. You've got to go a different approach. You're going to end up on the same dead-end street that I've been on. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you want ultimate meaning, that ultimate meaning comes from God himself. I want you to turn to John chapter 4, and I'll finish. John chapter 4. Jesus was making a journey and he went through the city of Samaria. Jews often didn't go through Samaria because there was animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. They usually went around Samaria, even though it was a longer journey, they went around Samaria. But Jesus said on this particular day, I have to go through Samaria. And the reason was because there was a woman there and he was going to change her life and he was going to change the lives of a whole bunch of other people that lived in the city of Samaria, of Samaria because of the testimony of that woman. Jesus and the disciples get there to the well. They go on into the city. The disciples go on into the city to get food. Jesus sits down out here at the well. And while Jesus is sitting at the well, a woman comes out. 
And she starts talking to Jesus. Jesus starts talking to her first. Then she starts talking to Jesus. And they enter into a conversation, something normally that wouldn't have happened because of Jew and Samaritan and because of male-female. Wouldn't normally have happened, but here Jesus engages this woman in a conversation and Jesus tells her where the ultimate meaning and fulfillment and purpose of life is found. And he uses the well itself. Notice what he says, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Think Solomon. Intellect, education, reason, judgment, experience. You can go after it with all of your heart, and it'll be a well you have to come back to again and again and again because it can never satisfy or give meaning, full meaning to life. You can go after pleasure, and it'll be a well where you have to go back to every day. You have to go back to that well. You have to go back to that well. You have to go back to that well. More pleasure, more pleasure. By the way, you know, it's like alcohol and a lot of other things. You get a little bit of pleasure that you sort of seems to satisfy, but then it doesn't become enough. So you got to expand the amount of pleasure. And then you got to expand the amount of pleasure. And you got to expand. You want more and more and more. And you can go back to that well over and over. And Solomon says, you can't find the meaning or the purpose of life in that well. Or you can look at your accomplishments and the degrees on your wall and all the things that people say about you, your profits, your possessions, your popularity. And you can go back to that well over and over and over again. And it, listen, that well one day will run dry. That well will one day run dry, but that well can never satisfy. It can never give meaning and real purpose to life. This woman came to this well every single day of her life. And when Jesus says, I'd like to give you some living water where you don't have to come back to the well, what do you think she said? <laughs> what do you think she said? Man, I want that water. What, what kind of water are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket to draw with. Are you greater, verse 12, than our father, Jacob? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him, in him, not in the well, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. <laughs> you understand that life is not a treasure hunt focused on pleasure and work and wealth. Life is supposed to be a God hunt. We're seeking the Lord while he may be found. 
That's Isaiah 55 or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You know where the fulfillment comes from? You know where the meaning comes from? It comes from a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been saying this for almost 40 years here. Why do we come to church? Why do we have life groups? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we have all of these things about knowing God and worshiping God and loving God and seeking God? Because I know that outside those doors, they'll tell you that what they're offering you will satisfy you, but it's only temporary. It's a well you have to go back to every single day, and ultimately, it'll run dry. But that relationship with God never gets old, and it never runs out. It's a spring. It's a spring. It just keeps on providing the freshness and the meaning and the purpose of life. You say, David, if you could go back and play professional golf, would you do it? There isn't any way I'd do it. Because I have found the real purpose and the real meaning of life. And that doesn't mean that God calls everybody to be a preacher. But I have found the real meaning and the real purpose of life isn't at the end of a long stick with a little ball on a tee. The real purpose of life is in pursuing God with all my being. That's where the meaning of life is found.